all for today, and one more Sunday will be in the Gospel of John. So we are definitely winding down to the end here, and so we're back in chapter 21, and we're going to be in verses 15 through 17 as you turn there, or it'll be on the screen for you. Um, some of you, I was just thinking, I was uh, sitting back there, um, we've been about two years in this book. Some of you have gotten a little more gray, I have, in that time. Um, age little, kids gotten a little bigger, driving now. I mean, a lot's happened, two years, right? Uh, it's amazing the things we've learned and we've seen in this book, and there's just such um, great advantages to going through and just seeing the life of Christ in such a slow pace. And so it's going to be it's gonna like an old friend when we finish up, and uh, definitely um, going to miss this book, but the great thing is we can read it on our own anytime we want, right? So uh, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, John writes, When they, that's the disciples, had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, Feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Tend my sheep. And in verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, it is our, just our lifeline in this world that uh, does not value you. It does not value your truth, God, um, as was mentioned earlier, God, we naturally just lean toward our own way and wanting to do things the way that we want them, God, and we've all gone astray, as your scripture said, and we thank you, Jesus, that you've rescued us, and I pray for anyone here today who does not know your saving grace and your redemption, that today they will see their need for you and, and turn to you, and God, I pray for those of us who are believers, you allow us today to embrace what you're doing in our lives and the way that you're working. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For those who've been around here for a little while, this will come no surprise for you, but for those who are newer, don't hate me as a result of this illustration, all right? So I'm, I'm just not an animal person, all right? I, it's not me, all right? My parents weren't animal people. My brother had to beg them to get a dog. No chance in the world they were going to allow that animal inside the house it was an outside dog, and so I don't know whether I just, from them or what, but I'm just not a, a pet, an animal guy. But a few years ago, Harrison, in his persistence, uh, probably about 10 or 11 years old, he, he just wanted a dog. He wanted a dog so badly, and so uh, finally, we, we, I agreed. I said, if, you know, if you're going to be responsible for it, if you're going to take care of it, you can have a dog. And it started out for like one day as an outside dog, and then it came inside. And so you don't hate me too badly. That, yeah, Harrison's controlling the computer upstairs, so I was like, optional, Harrison, if you put that up, but I guess he's okay with it, all right? So, yeah, Harrison and his dog. So, so you don't hate me too bad. Uh, you know, we now have a dog and three cats inside, so, well, I may not be an animal person, like, I'm a very loving person, right, to my family, so that's even more important, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to level with you. Like, the dog, like, I, I don't rub the dog's stomach. I don't pet the dog. Like, I don't spend time with the dog. I, I give it zero, Michelle will verify this, I give it zero affection and attention, but 
that dog loves me, right? <laughs> it follows me around, especially when Michelle and Harrison aren't there. It follows me around. It sits next to me. It pushes up against me. It, it, it tries to lick me. I mean, it's just like, it, it just loves me. It's, it's way more committed to me than I am to it, for sure, right? There's not very many things in the world that are more committed to you than you are to them, right? Because that's not the way the world works, right? I think our moms are like the only person in the world that, I mean, you don't send them a Mother's Day card or it's late or you miss their birthday and they're just like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's all right. And they still send you gifts. All right, so uh, moms and their children would be another one. But we see in this passage today that, that truly Jesus is way more committed to us than we are to him. Way more committed to us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we can very much identify with Peter in this story. We know that Peter has failed Jesus badly, if you've tracked along with us or you know anything about this gospel. That Peter was one of the most stubborn, arrogant, hard-headed people that we see in Scripture. I mean, he just was constantly making bad decisions, saying the wrong things, and of course, he denied Jesus three times. But here in the scene on the beach, Jesus offers him this fresh start, a new beginning, and an incredible role in the kingdom of God. And so if you backtrack to verse 3, Roy did a, 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 preached on this last week, did a great job. Verse 3, Peter said to the disciples, I'm going fishing. All right? So if you know about Peter, that's Peter's previous occupation was a fisherman. And so Jesus had been crucified at this point. He, had been, he, he was dead. He was buried. He rose again. He's shown himself to the disciples on several occasions at this point. And he's met with Peter. He's showed the disciples the nail prints in his hands and his feet. He showed them where the spear pierced his side. So Peter has seen Jesus and he's heard from Jesus. He's encountered Jesus post-resurrection But in John 21, we find Peter doing what he's been doing all his life before Christ, which was fishing. And now, we don't know for sure why Peter went back to fishing. I I think, you know, we naturally assume that it was because he wanted to get on with his life, right? Jesus was, like, leaving. He wasn't there. He can't be a disciple of him any longer, per se, you know. And so maybe he just, I got to move on. He needed money. That was a way of getting money. Rabbis would have been supported. Jesus wasn't on the picture on a regular basis and soon will be gone completely. So, and, and so how is he going to provide for himself and his family? Or was he just bored? He just needed whatever the reason. We don't know, but he returns to his own life, right? He goes back to his previous life. Have you ever been there before? You know, been just really upset with church or a relationship in church or something that's happened and you're like, I'm just done, right? And you've had those thoughts for a moment, like, I'm, I'm done with this. And, and I've had those thoughts in ministry before. I remember way back when early days of youth ministry in Tallahassee, and I just was struggling so much in the ministry and what was happening and the leadership style of the church and so on. And so I, I just literally, I was like, I think I'm done. You know, I, I think I'm done. And now, I was talking to Brendan about this before church. You know, some people believe that when God calls somebody into vocational pastoral ministry, that like that's a unique and and special calling, and like, you know, God just kind of speaks to them to say, You're in ministry, right? But I think in scripture, what we see is uh, he says, If anyone desires the office 
of a bishop or an elder or a pastor is the terms used interchangeably throughout Scripture. You've desired a good thing, right? God's put a desire in your heart. So in our culture, you have vocational pastors. We get paid to do what we do. Then you have people like Charles Whitaker and others who were standing up here who are elders in this church, spiritual leaders, every bit as much of a spiritual leader as I am in this church. But I'm the one who is the teaching elder, the teaching pastor. I get paid to do this. So if you desire the office of an elder, that's a great thing. God's put that in your heart. It's confirmed by the church that that's from God when they uh, approve you, put you into this office. It's a great, noble thing. And so God had put that desire on my heart. And so for me to go and begin to look around for other options, it would really have been a change in direction for me. I, I was discouraged. And I wonder if that's what Peter is going through at this point. He's just like, I'm going back to my old life. And of course, in your mind, you say, well, and I'll keep doing ministry, right? I'll, be, I'll, I'll still be involved. Peter, I'm sure, you know, he thought, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus wants, but I'm a fisherman. That's who I am. And we saw back in chapter 20, though, this is not what Jesus wanted for Peter or any of the disciples. Jesus had commissioned Peter and the others to go and to spread the gospel message to the world. If you go back to chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus told them, he says, as the Father has sent me, just like I, he sent me to this earth, I'm sending you out. And he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gave this, this incredible gospel message. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forg- will be forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And we talked about this. We said, We've been entrusted the gospel message where we can really truly tell people, if you believe this, you can have eternal life. If you believe this, eternal life is secure. You have eternal life. You can tell. And if people reject the gospel, you can say, you have no forgiveness from God. God does not forgive you. So they were entrusted with this incredible message of the gospel by Jesus, yet he and his buddies are out fishing again. And we saw last week that they were out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. I, I didn't know this before. This is interesting that the Sea of Galilee is about the size of Washington, D.C. This is a huge, huge sea in, in Israel. And so Jesus shows up on the beach. I guess he knows exactly where they'll be, of course, being Jesus. But I'm sure they had a routine when they did their jobs and when they worked and when he called them out of fishing that, that they had a location they used, maybe Peter, uh, maybe his family members were still in that occupation. But Jesus, we saw, showed up. And he cooked breakfast for the disciples. And so they return to shore after Jesus tells them how to get a big catch. And miraculously, they catch all these fish. They return to the shore. Jesus is there preparing breakfast for them. And then once they finish breakfast, verse 15, says that then Jesus uh, says to Simon Peter, he probably, we'll see next week's text, he probably pulls him away from the group. They probably go and begin to walk down the beach. And Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So it seems from our context, everything in our context tells us that Peter is still struggling with his recent failure of denying Jesus three times. And it seems like the primary reason for this scene being included in the gospel is to let Peter know that he is still loved and that Jesus has not thrown him aside, has not tossed him aside. All right, He's still loved by Jesus, and Jesus still has a, a purpose for him. And he's not been pushed aside or thrown out, disqualified. And, and maybe Peter even has thought about Jesus' teaching, which was literally not long before in John 15, 
where Jesus talked about abiding in him. And that's the expression he used back in verse 6 of 15. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And so the context of that passage was only branches that are connected to Jesus, the source of life, only these branches will bear fruit. But there's some branches that appear like they're connected, like Judas, the, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, who had a certain level of morality to him, a certain level of virtue to him. He appeared, he was collecting money for the disciples, wanted to go take care of the poor. Of course, we know he was a hypocrite and a fake, but he had no real interest in being connected to Jesus, to the vine. Judas did not. Of course, Peter, we know he did. Peter absolutely wanted to be connected to Jesus. He was connected to the vine. Jesus was his Savior and his Lord. He just was not a very good follower of Jesus up to this point. He had made a lot of mistakes like we do. He'd, he'd stumbled often like we do. But he was legitimately in love with Jesus, unlike some people who are fake. Um, I, I had a friend in high school. I say friend loosely, all right, honestly, because... He, he wasn't a guy that we really, like a lot of my friend group really liked a lot because just our personalities rubbed each other the wrong way, but he drove a really cool car, right? He, he drove a DeLorean, all right? You remember Back to the Future? The doors opened up, you know? Uh, so he had that car, pulled in the school parking lot, went to a small school. That was a really big deal. So if Chris asked any of our friend group, including me, hey, do you want to go drive down and get an ice cream or drive down to this here or there? Of course, right? Yeah, man, I want to go because I want to be seen in your DeLorean. But the truth is, I wasn't his friend. I was just using him for my advantage, right? And, and a lot of people who attend church have that mindset. They're like, I need Jesus like temporarily to get me out of this situation. Or like the consequences of my terrible sinful decisions are such that I've got to run to Jesus, and then if I do some good things here or attend church, that Jesus is going to take care of all that for me, but then I can just run back to my regular life. There's no real desire to be united with Christ, that union with Christ that we talked so much about. And so Jesus said these people who are just fake and trying to use Jesus, but they don't love Jesus, he says they'll be thrown into the fire and burned. Peter didn't want to be that person. He did not want to be that person. He was not that person. He truly loved Jesus. And Jesus, well, at this point, the new covenant, the gospel message, I'm sure he didn't have a really super great understanding of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. But he understood that Jesus was his identity, that Jesus was what he was about. And as we'll see in the book of Acts one day, that the Spirit motivated he and the other disciples to be these incredible lights for Jesus in the world. And so God changes our desires, that we don't want to be conformed to the world. The world's value system, when I say the world, if you're in church a lot, that becomes a very churchy world, but it's, it's the value system that the world, that this, this culture, this world that we live in values, and it's the identity that we get from being recognized and affirmed and valued by our culture. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. And so as a born-again believer, we desire to set our minds on, Colossians says, on things above, not on things of this earth. Meaning that 
we understand that our identity and our value and our purpose is wrapped up in Christ. And as Paul said in Romans 8.29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so God is working in each one of your lives, if you're a believer, to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. That's a progressive thing. It doesn't happen overnight, but he's doing that in your life, and he was doing it in, in Peter's life. But Peter's struggling at this point with his failure, with the fact that he did not measure up in his own mind. But he gets it later. In fact, in Peter's letter uh, titled 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 21, he wrote this to believers. He said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So he's writing to other people and he's saying, look, Jesus suffered, I ran away, I denied him, I'm writing to you to tell you that you've been called to suffer with Christ and follow in his steps. That where he goes, that's where we go as followers of Christ. But at this point in Peter's life, he's not following Jesus' steps. He needs Jesus to walk beside him down the beach, right? And explain to him and help him understand what's happened in his life, and discuss reconciliation. And I think it's interesting, this is kind of a side note, it may be insignificant, but I, I think it's interesting as I was studying this text that Peter's denial of Jesus was by a charcoal fire, the Gospels tell us, and then we find in the passage that we looked at last week that they're there again eating breakfast by a charcoal fire. And it's very unique, that word is only used twice in Scripture in the, in, or in the New Testament. And so you got to smell the fire, right? And Peter's there with Jesus. And he had his moment a minute ago where he just, Jesus had, had, had summoned them to shore and he recognized Jesus and he was really excited to see Jesus, but he gets around the fire and then he may be smelling the smoke and he's discouraged and he's thinking back and he's like, does Jesus even love me? Does he, Jesus even care for me? Does Jesus have a plan for me? And so he doesn't comprehend that Christ paid for his forgiveness, paid for his sins on the cross. He, he proved that he was who he said he was and what he accomplished for Peter, forgave his sins, all of his sins, wiped him clean. But Peter didn't get that. He had not fully comprehended that. And so he was still struggling with understanding how this works in his own life. And I think a lot of believers, we do the same thing. If we've been saved or born again, or the word, if you're new here today, or first time, or second time, and you know those words we use to, to mean the same thing, a Christian, born again, you've been saved, that's a person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they've trusted the cross and the cross alone for your righteousness. And, and for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, God is for us. He is completely 100% for us. But the things that I'm about to share with you here in a second, if you don't know Christ, if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, this is not true for you. In fact, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Scripture says, that you are alienated from God, and you're actually, even though you may not realize it, you're God's enemy, right? You're, you're working against God and his plan. And so I want to just walk you through maybe some of the things that, as I study this passage, some things that help me understand like just how to instill this gospel rhythm into my life and how to deal with my own shortcomings and failures and how to look at myself in light of the gospel. And so I read this uh, little definition or this little um, quote I'm going to put up here in, in a second 
in a book that I was reading, and it's not even a Christian book, but I think it's so true, and not to get all philosophical on you, but it, I think it's, just, it's interesting. The, the quote is, we always move in the direction that seems to bring us the most happiness in the moment. We always seem to move in the direction that seems to bring us the most happiness in the moment. All right, Let that, just think about that for a second, all right? Maybe you think, well, no, no, I, I deny myself all the time and do something that I would rather not do. Well, you do that because you understand that's pleasing to God, that God has called you to that, and so you find the most joy in that decision, even though somebody else may see that as a terrible choice and a terrible decision. And the reason why that in those moments we care about what God thinks and that we desire to please God and to do what God wants us to do is this reason right here. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, there's that union with Christ again that's so much in the New Testament we see in the gospel and scripture. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. And so God puts within the believer, inside Peter, not Judas, but Peter, this new desire, this new heart that desires the things of God. Not perfectly and not completely. We're still a work in progress. But God has given you this new way of seeing the world and seeing yourself and seeing your purpose on this world, in this earth. And so that's why you are drawn to be here today. Most of you are here because you care about that. You care about who you are in Christ and what he's doing in your life because the Holy Spirit has put those desires in your heart. He's given you those desires. So I want to help you understand how to like establish this gospel rhythm, kind of a thought process in your mind as you go through and deal with your own shortcomings and failures and sins. So remember this from Philippians 2, 13. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Let's just sit on that for one second, okay? God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is giving you desires, and he's giving you power to choose to do things for God's glory, and in those decisions, you find great joy and happiness. Does that make sense? Like, you're seeing yourself more and more making choices that honor God, and you find those are, are great, happy, joyful decisions. While you may have used to have been making other decisions that you thought would bring you joy, but over time, God's Spirit has shown you that that doesn't bring you any lasting or long-term joy because God is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure, to give you desires and the, and the reasons to do the things that please him. Then let me, let me give you another verse, 2 Peter 3.18. Peter writes this, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this work that God's doing in your life is not just a passive, I just lay back and let go and God just does the work, all right? We're, we grow, we're involved in this, and we grow in, our, in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read the word, as we're in community and K-groups, as we get together with other believers and sharpen each other, this helps us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, who was the most amazing Christian of all time, said, I want to know Christ, right? So it's still a lifelong process 
to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And so much of the time, our behaviors and our, and our, and our actions are oftentimes reactions to things that happen, right? So you're in the car, you're driving down Scott Street, somebody pulls right out in front of you, all right? What's your first reaction there? It's probably to be mad, ticked off a lot of you, to blow the horn and yell and scream, right? That's, that's a very natural reaction for people. And so a lot of times our reactions just happen. So you can't sit and contemplate how you're going to approach a situation that happens like that in the moment because all of them are unique and special. So those decisions and those choices are a result of God working and changing your heart, this progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ over time, where you'll see, you look back on your life and you see five years ago, you would have reacted to things differently than you do now. Sure, we all have our moments where we may not be walking in the Spirit. We may just be so focused on our own agendas that we react back the old way we used to do things. But we see that the defining qualities and evidences of our life point to we're more and more like Christ. And I think that falls into line with what Romans 12, 1 and 2, as I mentioned earlier, talks about, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to the world, to the values of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so sometimes we make the will of God being like, where do I go to be a missionary, or what do my kid, where should they go to college, my kids, you know, who should I get married to? We make these things like, this is the will of God. But the will of God is going on all around us every day, all day, right? God is doing something around us. And so as we understand who we are in Christ, and that Christ is working in our life, and that he's doing great things and giving us the power to do great things, and we're growing in grace, and we're allowing our minds to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by the word, then we can live the way that God has called us to live. And this is just a rhythm, just a flow of our lives. And so here, here's the warning in all this, okay? James talks about that there's this wisdom that comes down, that does not come down from above, but he says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's even demonic. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil are trying their best to cause you to stumble, to fail, and to sin, and to look at yourself and say, as Peter did, I'm unworthy. But here is the message that Peter gets today, but gets more fully within the next weeks and months and years, is the fact that in Christ, he's a new creation. In Christ, he's a new creation. Sin does not define him. In fact, sin is not who we are. We're not sinners. We have been declared righteous by God positionally, and our identity is now Christ in me. Christ in me. I'm united with Christ. So maybe you can look at, at sin, as Paul did in Romans chapter 7, as like a foreign thing, like a splinter being in, in you, right? And it's causing infection. Sin is like a splinter that gets inside of you. It, it becomes uh, you know, inside and, and, and gets pus and gets infected. But it's not who you are. That's not you. And that, why is that important? It's important because when we understand when we fail and when we sin and when we fall, that it's not affecting our identity and our position before Christ. That Christ looks at us, 
regardless, if we're in Christ, we're connected to the divine, we're truly a believer, Christ, God looks at us and he sees Jesus. He sees Christ and his blood. Jesus would not have had to come and die on that cross if it's, okay, okay, I'm going to save you, but now earn my forgiveness or earn my love or earn my appreciation for you. It's done. It's settled on the cross. It's completely settled. That's why Jesus did what he did. And that defines us. And so as Peter is feeling miserable and as he's struggling and he's questioning that he's going to see the gospel message, he's going to write about the gospel message, why Jesus came and the difference that it makes within us, how it changes us at our very, very core. So back to the beach, all right? Back to Peter and Jesus walking along beside one another. And, and, and Jesus is assuring Peter of his unconditional, unfailing love and this incredible mission that he has for Peter. And so Peter, as he's walking along, I'm sure that his memories of these old failings, these old wounds and these things that he's done and how Satan even has you know, attacked him and come at him. But Jesus is way more committed to Peter than Peter has been to Jesus, right? If you go back to chapter 13, verse 37, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then how did Jesus respond to him on that? Luke 22, 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that you might, he might sift you as wheat. We talked about this. Jesus is committed to Peter. Even as Peter makes these bold declarations that Jesus knows Peter's going to fail. He's going to fall. He's not going to do this. But what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, I'm praying for you. He says, I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned again, not if, right? Not if you've turned again, but when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So we see Peter, these big, bold statements, arrogance, prideful. And Jesus, he says, look, Peter, I'm committed to you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying, and you're going to turn, and you're going to be this incredible leader for the church. And here, listen, here's how this applies to you and I. Christ in us. God looks at us. Christ is praying for us. And God knows that you're not going to be lost. If you're in Christ, you're in a new creation. Nothing you do can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 tells us. And so as Peter is struggling, he needs to remember what Christ has done. And the same is true for you and I. When we struggle, when we fail... We go to the cross. We don't go and look at ourselves. We don't dwell in an unhealthy manner on our own sin. We grieve our sin, but we run to the cross. We run to Jesus. And in that, we understand that our identity hasn't been changed at all. Jesus hasn't lost confidence in us whatsoever. Because why? He who began a good work in you is going to complete it. It's Jesus' work. And when you have done these things, strengthen the brothers, he tells Peter. I'm praying for you, Peter. You're not going to fail. 
Yes, it feels like for you, like your faith, don't let your faith fail. But look, it's not going to fail, Peter. I know the end of the story. And God knows the end of the story for every believer in here. That he is more committed to you than you've ever been to him. And so Jesus, he tells Peter, he asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Because he gets to really the heart of it all is love, love for Jesus, Peter. And, and I think what he's doing, he's, he's pointing Peter, he's pushing people to Peter to say, look to Jesus here. And I was talking to someone recently about the security of salvation issues, and I said, look to Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Love Jesus. That's the heart of it. Do you love Jesus? And Peter, he does love Jesus. He wants Jesus to, to restore him. He denied him, but now he wants that restoration. And you remember back in the earlier account that Peter had declared that even if everyone else turns and runs away, even if the other disciples abandon him, he says, I will never do it. I won't do it, right? The pride. So now Peter is humbled, and I think that's why Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, you might disagree as you read this or look at your study Bible or commentary. There's some different opinions about what these are, but I'm fairly convinced that these are the other disciples. As Peter boldly declared and, 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 and said, look, I'm going to stick with you even if they all run away, and he's the guy that ran away, right? And so Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And look, Peter does not respond, yes, I love you more than these. What's he say? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Also interesting here is that Jesus refers to Peter, did you all catch that, as Simon? Simon, that's his old name, right? When Jesus first met Simon and he called him to be a disciple and he, he looked at him and he said, um, you're Simon, son of John, but now you're going to be called Cephas, which is Aramaic, um, which means Peter, or Greek, that's the Greek. And so Cephas and, and, and Petros is, is the Greek word, and it means rock. It means rock man, if you really want to get it literally. Peter, you're a rock. You're the rock man. And he's not feeling so much like a rock man at this moment, but Jesus knew his destiny again from the beginning. Yet he reminds Peter of all that he's done in his life, right? He calls him Simon. He reminds him that anything that good that will happen, that he will accomplish, has to be a result of Jesus and what Jesus has done, not what he's done on his own. So also kind of interesting, and there's been a lot of sermons that talk about the differences between the word love that's used in this passage. Uh, it, it is interesting to look at that Jesus uses love slightly different uh, the first couple times here. And was Peter hesitant to express sacrificial love? Because when Jesus said, do you love me? This was agape love. This was unconditional love. This is love that just knows no end. And, and he says to him, do you love me? And then Peter, when he responds back, it's more of a friendship or brotherly type love. And now we don't know whether that variation is a result of Jesus really pointing out something to Peter and how Peter is responding. Because in verse 17, John says that he asked the same question three times. So not for sure, but just, again, an interesting thing. But what God is, what Christ is doing here to Peter is he's humbling Peter. He's humbling Peter. He's helping Peter see that if you're going to lead my church, if you're going to feed my sheep, 
If you're going to tend to my flock, then you have to be humble. You have to depend upon me, and you have to get out of the way. It can't be about you, Peter. And so, also interesting distinctions. That Look at verse 15. Let me just read through this rest of the section again. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him this a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. So the first time, feed or pasture my lambs. The second time is tend or take care of my sheep. This was more of an administrative shepherding role. And then feed or pasture my sheep again in verse 17. The bottom line is he's telling Peter it's time to learn to be a shepherd. That's what he's getting at. Peter, it's time to learn to shepherd and care for people. Not be so centered on yourself and what you can do and what you can accomplish and and what you're all about and you'll do these great things. No, Peter, it's about me. And if you're going to be my under-shepherd, if you're going to take care of my flock, you've got to keep your eyes on me. You've got to love me and quit thinking about yourself so much. And so Peter responds, we'll see over the next weeks, or next week, about how he responded to this. But I think it's important to recognize, as leaders in this church, whether you lead G-Kids ministry, or whether you're an elder or a deacon, that Scripture refers to God's people as his sheep. And Peter is there to share the task with Jesus to take on the mantle of being the shepherd to the people. All right, Jesus gives him that task. He gives us that task. And later on in 1 Peter, he writes, Shepherd God's flock among you. This is 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. Not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Get that? So here's Peter writing in 1 Peter. He gets it, right? He ultimately gets it. He understands that it's not about being the lord over the flock. It's not about being the best and the greatest. It's about being humble. And it's about letting Jesus be the one that everything points to because he's the one who changes our hearts and gives us forgiveness of sins and life eternal. So Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus asked him, do this, Peter, because it flows out of your love for me. So our head application today is very simple. I've said it several times in the sermon. Jesus is way more committed to you than you are to him. It's awesome news. That's gospel news that we have to continually to focus on. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans. He's taken his love and just given it to you in enormous, enormous amounts, so much that you can't even comprehend the love that he's given to you. So what do you do in response? We embrace God's grace. Like Peter, we come to understand that we're fully loved and completely accepted by God because of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. It's not your performance. It's not how well you do or how much you fail or how many times you sinned or don't sin. Those things don't earn favor with God. They don't cause God to love you more. They don't, your performance 
is not what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ and him alone. And so we work, we labor, we serve out of that acceptance, not for it. We don't work for his grace. We, we serve out of his grace. And, and for some of you, and I know we're at the end of the sermon, and so your mind is full and you're like, can't take in anymore probably, right? But I need you to really grasp that, especially if you're one of these type of people who all you are is like performance-based. Like just your job is you do the stuff and then you get the, the scores and the grades and the raises and the promotions. And it, or maybe you're a kid at home or you're raised in a family where love was about what you accomplished or did for your family. And when you didn't do the right things, you were pushed aside and a barrier was put up and your love, love was withheld to you because of the way you, were, that you performed. And so this world is all about performance. And it's all about doing stuff so we get something in return. And God's economy is so upside down. It's the, it's the opposite. Jesus gave you at salvation all the acceptance, all the love of God that you ever need in this life and in the next. And out of that, we don't work and earn it. We work out of his acceptance. And so what does that mean practically? Run to the gospel. When you serve, let's let's make it practical. When you go up to G-Kids on your week and you work in G-Kids, if you don't serve out of the gospel, Christ loved me and he came for me and he gave himself for me and he gave me his righteousness. If I don't serve out of that, then everything's annoying and a nuisance to me, right? Everything, like, why did that kid do that? And you go home and, like, I can't believe that family. That kid, like, they're, they're the worst. They must, you know, have a terrible home life. You know, and you, and you complain and, and you're discouraged because you're serving out of the flesh. You're serving out of your focus on you. And that's what Peter did. Before Jesus changed his heart and gave him the Holy Spirit, it was all about Peter and what he wanted. Jesus gave him a new heart. And he said, Peter... Feed my sheep out of love for me. Take care of my flock. That union with Christ, abiding in the vine, out of that you serve, and God gives you the strength to do more than you can even imagine or think because of him and his love alone. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this incredible passage of of restoration with Peter. And God, it's easy for us to be like Peter and, and and think we need restoration. But God, we thank you that we've been fully restored in Jesus and that in, in you we're new creations. And God, I pray you'll help us to embrace who we are in you and what you accomplished for us on the cross. And God, I pray today as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, as we take the juice and as we eat the bread, God, that we'll remember and we'll celebrate what you did for us on our behalf when we were destined for destruction. We were your enemies. We were separated from you. And you came and gave yourself so we could have life. And God, we thank you. And may today be a celebration of that. In Jesus' name.